0: Now Turn with me this morning in the Word of God to to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, it is uh, the day after the 503rd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, so I thought it would be helpful, as we normally do, to take a moment to remember a great Reformation theme from the Word of God. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bible to Romans 10. And our text for examination will be verses 14 through 17. But I'm going to have to start reading at verse 5. So will you stand with me now with respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 5. For Moses writes, The man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. And now our text. How then will they call? On him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they do not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that report? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word. If there's any catechism question and answer that is the equivalent of music to my ears, it's Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number 65. It says, since then we are uh, partakers of Christ and all of his benefits by faith only. Where does this faith come from? And the answer is... The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts to the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms or seals it by the use of the holy sacraments. And this is a marvelous question because it's a gospel question, first of all. It's quite easy to see the gospel focus of this question when it says that we are made partakers of Christ and his benefits by faith only. That's the great Protestant Reformation sola. It's the battle cry of the Reformation, if you will. Faith alone. That faith and nothing else saves. Remember, if you've heard these things before about the Reformation, that it was about... Um, unveiling the concealed gospel. For centuries, Rome had cloaked and concealed the gospel of Jesus Christ in in its pure and biblical form by covering it over with a whole set of works that had to be added to faith for a person to have any assurance at all that they were saved. But as the reformers read the Bible, what they were impressed with again and again from passages like this and so many others, that the very plain statement of the word of God is that faith and nothing else saves. Christ is a full and complete Savior. He doesn't need me to do anything. All I have to do is come unto him and to believe. And this is precisely what's being affirmed here in the very question 65. We are, it affirms, Partakers of Christ and his benefits by faith only. But it is curious that uh, more than one historian and theologian in the Reformed churches today has noted that this is the most underbelieved question and answer in the entire catechism, and perhaps beyond that, it is perhaps the most underbelieved question and answer in all of the Reformation confessions. Stop and you think about that this morning. You ask yourself, how could it be that in the Reformed and Presbyterian churches, those that are truly biblical, those who are faithful to Scripture and faithful to Christ, that this particular question could be the most underbelieved? Now, we need to clarify this morning, what's not underbelieved is the notion of faith alone. Everybody concedes and agrees to the idea that we are saved by faith and faith alone. That's not where the problem comes in. If you don't believe that, you're not reformed. Where the problem comes in is where the Catechism answers how or where the faith comes from. Remember, question 65 has looked back to the questions about faith alone and gospel and justification and the forgiveness of sins. It's made it very clear, all of us, to all of us that we receive that by faith alone. But now it's trying to ask this very specific question. Where do you get that faith? You see, it's one thing to confess that you're saved by faith alone, but it's an entirely different question to ask, well, where do we get it from? Do we get it from ourselves? Do we get it from the church? Do we get it from somebody else? And the very clear and unmistakable and very narrow claim that the Reformed Church stakes out here in this answer is that faith comes through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Now, notice what's so narrow about that. It doesn't say that faith comes through hearing the Word. It doesn't say that faith comes blandly, barely, or gently from the Word. No, it makes a very narrow and very specific and very targeted claim saying that faith comes through the preaching of the Holy Gospel, that it is the Spirit of God who takes the preaching of the Word of God and he creates faith in the heart. And it's that which is under belief. I can't tell you how many times in the course of my ministry as I've taught on this particular truth in the Reformed Church that I have had people come up to me after done preaching or after done leading a Bible study people who know better people who have been raised in the Reformed Church their whole life and they'll say to me what you just said was wrong and I'll say to them well have you ever heard of question and answer 65 in the Heidelberg Catechism And the answer is usually one of two things. Well, it can't really mean that. Or two, if it does, it's wrong. You see, we have uh, had a generation or two or three now of people who grew up in the Reformed Church within the context of broad evangelicalism and broad Protestantism who've had their minds completely warped about the way faith comes. But I want to proclaim to you this morning on this 503rd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, this reformed biblical and theological doctrine, which connects the great truth that we all love and confess, which is justification by faith alone, to the theology of preaching. Because you see, that's what the reform did. They didn't just preach that we were saved by grace alone. They did that. They preach that we are saved by a gracious means alone, and that's preaching. And we get that this morning from our text from Romans ten fourteen. And what we want to do this morning is pursue this main idea that saving faith is worked in the heart by the preaching of the word of God through the operation of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to begin uh, right before our text, actually this morning, in verse 13 and see first of all the theme of faith alone and second we'll come back to that and see that preaching is what produces this faith so we started verse 13 here as we think about faith alone saves and the thing that is very clear to us is the promise in verse 13 whoever will call on the name of the lord will be saved that's unambiguous it's categorical And it's unambiguous. What's categorical is this. It's for all people. For all kinds of people. And you have that note highlighted in the word whoever. It means all, anyone, whosoever. The way of salvation is the same for everyone. Whoever. And the categorical statement that is made which follows that categorical statement up is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all that's required, calling, which is the fruit and act of believing. It's clear, it's unmistakable, it's unambiguous. But before we come back into verse 14 to see how The Apostle Paul answers how it is that somebody calls on the name of the Lord unto salvation. I think it's important that we step just back behind this verse for a moment because the biblical teaching that the Apostle Paul unfolds there about salvation by faith alone will connect and sink back up into our text, which answers how it is a person receives this faith so that they can call on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And so if you look back with me at our text, and this is why I began our reading this morning at verse 5, because the Apostle Paul works his way into what becomes the conclusion in verse 13 that whoever calls will be saved. He he works his way towards it by contrasting two paths to righteousness or or to salvation. And you see the first path in verse 5. For Moses writes... The man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. So he speaks of Moses here. He's obviously citing Leviticus 18.5, which says that the man who does these things will live by these things. That's the way of works, righteousness by works. The law proclaims a way for uh, staking out a claim upon eternal life through obedience. And the way that is secured is by total conformity to the law of God. The one who unfailingly practices the righteousness of the law, the text says, shall live. That is, have eternal life. That was the way which was before Adam and the Garden of Eden before he sinned. That's what was uh, at stake with the probationary test about not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That if if Adam had obeyed the the command of God in that covenant of works situation in the garden, he would have been confirmed in eternal life. And the absolute same principle or path is stated here in Moses in Leviticus 18.5. The one who does this We'll live by it. But as you move on into verse 6, you can see the Apostle Paul begins the hint of the problem. As he wants to move now into the contrast, he set up the, the one way of righteousness, uh, righteousness by works, and he brings in, by way of contrast, another way to righteousness, which is righteousness by faith. So notice here he begins by saying, but the righteousness based on faith speaks Different, and here um, he uses the language of of Deuteronomy 30 to describe uh, the pursuit if you will of righteousness by works and it's in the form of an epic quest do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead You see, the Apostle Paul is using the language of Deuteronomy 30 to show what it would be like if a person could secure righteousness by their works. It would be equivalent to scaling heaven's heights with your bare hands. The problem is, uh, that's works and everybody fails. That's precisely why the righteousness-based on faith says don't say this you know, just a couple of questions and answers before this uh, in the Heidelberg explains why you can't do that It explains why this option is not available to you this morning if you're a sinner because it says that the righteousness which can stand before the judgment seat of God must be perfect throughout and wholly conformable to the divine law What Paul has put poetically and metaphorically into the form of a quest, the catechism states theologically the demand of works righteousness is this. You must do every single thing which is required in the book of the law. It must be perfect and totally in conformity to the righteousness which God demands. But the problem is this, as the catechism answer goes on to say, even our best works are imperfect and are defiled with sin. You think about what you did last week and you think about what you think was the best thing you did. Go ahead, just take a moment to think this morning about something you did. You say, I feel proud of what I did. We're encouraged to think about that. We're being messaged in our entire generation to think about how great we are, right? Everybody can do great things if they just try, right? Everybody's messaged this way. Think about the best thing that you did, and the Word of God would tell you even the very best thing you did was imperfect and defiled, it's unacceptable to God. That's the reason why the first path to righteousness will not work. The problem isn't with the path, the path is right, the path is righteous. There's nothing wrong with the path. The problem is us. The law doesn't give us any power or ability to perform what it requires, and I don't have it myself. And so we need another way. And that way is righteousness by faith. What I want you to notice from our text is the way Paul describes this righteousness by faith, because that's what connects into what we're going to speak about when we come to verse 14 and how this faith comes. But notice how he describes uh, the way faith speaks. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? That's, that's a reference back to verse 6. Remember when he said, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not. And now he says, by way of contrast, this is what it does say. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's the word of faith we are preaching. Remember, he's looking now back onto this idea of of righteousness by works as this epic quest. Of you taking whatever means and resources and strength you have and and trying to scale the heights of heaven by all of your raw power, might, ability, and ingenuity. And the word of faith says you can do all of your attempting, of all of your scaling heaven's heights, but here is the glorious and gracious thing about the gospel. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's put into your heart. There's no labor. There's no effort required. All you have to do is stand there. And then Paul drops the metaphorical language, and he says, what I'm talking about is this, this word of faith which we are preaching. See, the the righteousness by faith path is, is an easy one. It's a simple one. It's, a, it's one in which we don't do anything and God does all of the work. He brings the word and he places it right into the heart. And when he does that by grace, we're able to confess his name. That's what's described. And you look at verses 9 through 10. He He simply proclaims there, in various different ways, the gospel of justification by faith alone, to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and he says, You will be saved. But but that's the message, that's the hopeful message that Paul is going to explain how we believe in it under salvation. You come to verse 14. But for now, we simply notice what the Apostle Paul is speaking about. He is speaking about salvation by grace alone, justification by faith alone, and what he says, this is the way of righteousness which comes by faith and not works, and it is the way in which God does everything. The way in which God brings the word to you this morning so that you are able, not of your works or of yourself, of your energy or your might, but simply by what God does to you and for you. You're able. To come to saving faith. That's the message we cherish. That's the message we pause at least once a year and hopefully more. To amplify and to trumpet and proclaim in the hearing of the people of God. The way of salvation. It's something that comes by faith. It's something that comes as the person believes in the heart. This is the message we love. We say this so often here because this text seems to me to summarize it so clearly and so uh, in such warm colors and terms. But, but Christ amplifies the very same gospel message. When he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I'll give you rest. There's nothing more powerful and gentle and more endearing than Christ's word of invitation. Just come to me, and I'll give you rest. It's categorical. All you have to do to enjoy the blessing of saving grace is just come. And the backdrop forms the trappings of the situation of the glory of the promise. He says he's speaking to those who are weary and heavy laden. He's speaking to those who've been attempting to go down that path of righteousness by works. And he says, this is all it causes. It just causes a person to become weary and heavy laden and discouraged. You see, because the person who seeks to scale heaven's heights by their bare hands keeps falling down. And the more they fall the more they become crushed by the agonizing reality of the impossibility. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not determined enough. What Jesus proclaims is a different way than the way of works righteousness. It's the way of righteousness by faith. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and all of your sins will be forgiven. Come to me and my righteousness will be given unto you. And so as often as we hear that, we rejoice in it and we take whatever faith we have and we exercise it. And we look to Christ because there's no other way to be saved. The Apostle Paul, having stated so clearly and emphatically this way of salvation through calling on the Lord Jesus now, takes up a, an important point, which is this. How do we do it? You see, the most pressing thing that anybody would ask after hearing the categorical clear statement that whoever calls will emphatically and undeniably be saved, the question which immediately follows is, well, how in the world can I call? Apostle anticipates that now, so we come now into... The second point, that preaching produces faith. We have seen that faith alone saves, but the question is, where do I get this faith from? And so now we come into uh, verse 14, and here's where we begin to expound the theology of question 65, which says that the Holy Spirit works faith in our heart through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. But we need to not just quote the catechism. We need to discern how the catechism is grounded in the Word of God. And so uh, verse uh, 14 on into verse 15 presents us with the biblical warrant for confessing this very narrow claim and assertion that faith is worked in the heart through the preaching of the gospel. So the Apostle said, How then will we call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Now, I know that a good many of you have heard me preach or teach on this so many times that it's just old hat. That uh, with blindfolds on, you could carve figure eights out on the ice, if you will, and and explain this clearly. Clearly. But it never hurts to be grounded in, in simple, plain, foundational truths. And when it comes to something so important as faith alone and where we get faith from, it bears repeating over and over again in the church how we know what we believe is true and from the Word of God. And here the Apostle Paul makes it as simple as one, two, three, four, five. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. We have a series of five verbs here. Which outline the process by which God produces this faith. Calling, believing, hearing, preaching, and sending. We have to expound those, but it's as simple as one, two, three, four, five. Calling, believing, hearing, preaching, and sending. Now, it's interesting about the verbal order here as it emerges in the text. If you just flip that around, you'll be able to see the linear sequence by which God brings this faith to our hearts. It would be. As simple as this. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling. That's the order. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling. That's how God brings the word near. So let's unpack these questions. We begin to see how the text teaches that saving faith is generated by the preaching of the word. And we start here with verse 14. And the very first question. How will they call on him in whom... They have not believed. So there's the very first question. And as soon as we hear that word call, our minds, of course, go right back to verse 13, where the Apostle Paul has just quoted Joel 2.32, and it's emphatic declaration that whoever will call will be saved. But here now the Apostle Paul takes up the key issue. He says, well, how will they call? Unto salvation. And then he adds this in whom they have not believed. Well, the question is very straightforward because the answer is implied. And the implied answer is there's no way to call without believing. That's the key. You can't call upon Christ unless you would believe. And so this is the very first thing that needs to be answered. Well, if I'm going to call, how then do I come to believe? And that leads then to the next question. Well, how will they believe in whom they have not heard? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And you've heard me say this again and again many times to the point you're probably weary of it. But this uh, very often is translated wrongly. I'll give you some examples. The New New International Version says, How shall they believe in the one of whom they have not heard. The King James Version, the New King James, says how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard. The English Standard Version says are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard. The MEV says how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard. Now what holds every single one of these translations together is this how will they believe in him of whom you see all of them make the uh, the translation choice of saying that the issue of faith is about hearing about Christ see that's the entire theology which drives that translation and that theology says the way you believe is by hearing about Jesus Christ and this is that flawed theology which flows from a bad translation of the text which has permeated the church culture for the last 150 years. And it is unleashed upon a contemporary Christianity in our day and then going back now generations, an entire theology of evangelism that's completely flawed because it's based on a simple and wrong premise that all you have to do is hear about Jesus. <clears throat> One of the most ridiculous tactics that has flowed from that was expressed to me by my neighbor who told me when I moved across the street from him years ago in New York, happy to know that I was a pastor because he was too, and his ministry was to visit churches in the area and mime the gospel to others. Mime the gospel. After all, the way to salvation is simply to hear about Jesus. And the irony is, miming doesn't even use a word. But again, it points us to the idea that a whole set of flawed tactics are used to get people saved. Because all you've got to do is tell about. But that's not what the Apostle Paul says. Because the Apostle Paul says exactly what it says here in the New American Standard. It says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now what's obvious from this is the Apostle Paul is saying that the key to believing is by hearing Christ. That's what he's saying. The key to believing is hearing, not about Christ, but hearing Christ speak. That's the reformed understanding of the text. That's the accurate translation of the text. And it's so very different. Think about it. If you're hearing about somebody, that person does not have to be speaking unless they just like talking about themselves in the third person. Well, John likes vanilla ice cream. No, when you hear about something, it could be third, fourth hand report. It doesn't matter. The person doesn't have to be there. There's no direct communication. There's no address in that way. But to hear someone speak, they must be there. And they must be speaking directly. And they're not reporting now. They are speaking directly to you. And that's precisely the theology that Paul is seeing. The way you believe is by hearing Christ. Now remember, this fits perfectly with what we just saw in verse 8, right? Said so the Apostle Paul was comparing and contrasting the two ways to righteousness. There is the the way of righteousness by, by works, and then there's the way of righteousness by faith, and, and the glory and the beauty and the wonder of the path of the righteousness by faith is, the apostle says, well, the word is near you. It just comes to you. It is placed right in your heart. Well, that's the theology that Paul now proclaims here. The way that we come to, to, to call out to Christ is we believe And the way we believe is by hearing Christ. That's exactly what Jesus said. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. See that? The way that a person follows, the way a a sheep follows Christ, according to Jesus' own words, is they must hear him. They must hear his voice. Well, that's the theology Paul proclaims here about how it is that somebody calls. They can't call unless they believe. They can't can't believe unless they hear. They have to hear. And so now the most pressing question is this. Well, how in the world do I hear Christ? This is where everybody disagrees now. Because the, the question that follows answers it. And how would they hear without a preacher? The staggering theology of the text of Romans 10, 14 says that the way I hear Christ is to the preaching of the word. You see, when we come across the word here in verse 14, in the last question of the verse, we're not to just think in general terms. He's just said that the way you believe is by hearing Christ. So, Paul just cuts it short and smashes it down to size, and he simply asks the question: well, how will they hear Christ without a preacher? The clear and obvious implication of the question is: the way that a person believes in order that they may hear Christ is what? Through the preaching of the Word of God. Now, there's different places. We can go in Scripture to confirm that this is not the only time this is taught. But how about Ephesians 2.17 where the Apostle Paul says, He came and preached peace to you who were far away. He's speaking of Christ here. He says, He came and He preached peace to you who were far away. Now we take a moment to place that in the context because just a few verses prior to that In verse 13, the Apostle Paul proclaims something that was world-changing. As he says of these Gentiles and pagans, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's speaking to the Ephesian church. He's speaking to generations of idolaters and pagans. And he says to them, something world-changing has happened to you. You've been brought near. Now what amplifies the grace of that is what he's just said about the experience of all of their family, friends, cousins, and loved ones for millennia in the verse prior to that. As he spoke of the horrible state and condition of Gentiles and idolaters before Christ, he says, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, strangers to the covenants, having no hope without God in the world. That people of God is a sorrowful tale. That was the whole world lying in darkness before Christ separate from Christ, excluded, strangers, hopeless, without God. But then Paul says in verse 13, but now, but now, Christ Jesus, now he's brought you near by his blood. Well, how did he do that? How did he so radically reorient and change the situation of these Ephesian, Gentile, pagan idolaters? And the answer is in verse 17. He came and he preached peace to you who were afar off. It's so the same theology that you have here, Romans 10, 14. It just said just a little bit different. But the fact of the matter is the Apostle Paul says the thing that changed everything was Christ came and he preached so the question is, did Jesus Christ really travel to Ephesus and preach to them? Of course not. Jesus Christ came and he preached among his own, and they rejected him. That's what the Bible says. He walked around Palestine for three years of public ministry, and he preached to anyone who would hear, and crowds and throngs and thousands and multitudes followed him around, and they hung on his every word. In the end of it all, they strung him up on a cross. And then he ascended into heaven after he rose power from the dead. He never went to Ephesus. The way Jesus Christ came and he preached peace to the faraway Gentiles in Ephesus was through the preaching of the word of God. The exact same thing that the apostle Paul says here in Romans 10, 14. How would they hear without a preacher? That brings us to the last thing, then, which is essential. Well, how in the world can I get a preacher? Well, verse 15 tells you. How will they preach unless they are sent? How will they preach unless they are sent? You see, the the theology of ministry, which uh, Paul implies here, is, is a vast one. Because it's not every single person who comes up to you and buttonholes you with a verse about Jesus is a preacher. <laughs> no, because the Apostle says, in order for them to be uh, one who would preach, they must be sent. They must be specially commissioned and ordained by God. Calvin nails it when he says, No one is a preacher of it but he whom God has raised up in his special providence. You see, this is a a massive theological idea here. But what the apostle is proclaiming is that there must be special office ordination and sending. There must be a real government in the church. Of course, we already know that because we've studied Ephesians 4 and that that whole set of gifts that, that, that Paul says Christ gave to the church, which among them were all these word gifts which were given to do the work of the ministry. But what I want us to see here is so clear and obvious, and yet it's spoken for the consolation of our soul with this that God, in his providential arrangement of things, has set it up so that we can call on Christ and be saved. And what he's set up in his word, what he's instituted in his church, our offices. One of those offices is the office of the minister of the word. Christ has instituted that in his church and he raises up men to preach that gospel so that when they are raised up and sent and preach, he consecrates their voice that he may speak to them. That's the theology of the text. How is it that somebody calls? Indeed, it is a miracle in a sense, isn't it? If you've ever pled with somebody to believe, if you've ever hoped in your life that somebody would believe, you know just how impossible this is. No one's good. No one wants the right thing for their soul. No one wants Christ. People love their sin. No one seems to be afraid of the wrath and judgment of God. Everybody thinks they're okay. is it then that somebody's ever going to be in that place where they bow their knee before Christ and call the apostle Paul says here's how it happens Christ sins they preach he speaks they hear they believe they call not as simple as one two three It's as simple as 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, isn't it? Christ sends. They preach. We hear. We believe. We call. Yeah, it's all affirmed in verse 17, by the way. Look down at your text. Skip over the rest there and come into verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ the word that's used there uh, so is a is a word that's used uh, grammatically as a summarizing technique or device and it's very plain the apostle paul wants to just stop and say hey did you get the point so many times i've heard verse 17 wrongly uh quoted by people who again have the wrong theology of ministry and they say well all, all it's all that's about is hearing no the apostle is just summarizing what he's just said and, he takes verse 14 and he shrinks it down to size. And he says as simple as this: faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, can I be picky in a minute? Our text here in the New American has Christ, but the, the best uh, reading in the original is God. So it should read faith comes by the, the hearing of God. And what that does is reinforce what uh, the power of, Of the preacher. It's God in Christ who consecrates that mouth of the preacher to speak to his church. This is how we account for the fact that preaching is this powerful means to call somebody out from the clutches of the kingdom of darkness. Because God with the booming power of his voice calls. Faith comes by hearing. Well, where does the hearing come from? Hearing comes as Christ speaks through the preached word. So this is how it happens, people of God. The Reformation was a movement back to the Bible, wasn't it? back to the sources, back to the text. The Reformation was about getting a theology from the word of God and reading that in terms of how the fathers had interpreted the word to make sure we weren't just making things up new and whole cloth. But the thing that they discovered when they went back to the word of God is that the word of God proclaimed a salvation which was all about grace alone, in Christ alone, and by faith alone. As we think about this for our application, I want us to be clear, as wonderful as the sound of saved by grace alone is, it needs to be reinforced and supplemented and strengthened by this. We're saved by grace through a gracious means, right? Isn't that the accent of the apostle? As he contrasts the two different ways to righteousness, he can say you can have the path of righteousness which is by your works and it requires you to scale the heavens or you can have righteousness by faith which is simple as this. God brings the word near. He speaks it right into your heart. How in the world does the word get into my rock, cold, stony heart? Because God empowers His Word to go there. Jesus Christ speaks and preaches through the preached Word. He consecrates that mouth of the minister in order that He may speak through it. And so, as much as we love and revel and rejoice and give thanks for this great theme of grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. We dare not forget what the reformers also proclaim. We're not just saved by grace. We're saved by means which are gracious. The preaching of the word because God has appointed a means to bring us unto him which is powerful. God has appointed a means for us to be saved which addresses me right where. I am so then it's not about me lifting a finger to hoist faith towards Christ it's God coming down and planting that right in my soul through this means and the other thing we would add here is that in order for it to be a gracious means it must be accompanied by the Holy Spirit We we insist on the fact that whenever the word is preached, it's always powerful. Because when the word is preached, God is speaking. It's always powerful. But it doesn't always save everyone, does it? It doesn't always save everyone. This is where we want to think about this problem. How can it be that two equally unsaved people come and they sit on the very same gospel presentation which is a powerful preaching of the word because it's Christ consecrating the mouth and the voice of the pastor to speak. And yet one goes home saved in the joy of the gospel and the other goes home hardened in their sins and guilt. How do we account for that? And the answer is so well stated by the Heidelberg Catechism as it says, the Holy Spirit works faith in my heart for the preaching of the gospel. See, there must be this additional working of Christ by his spirit to bring the word home graciously. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 1.5. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Paul can't say everything in this text. It wasn't his design to. But as you read this text in relationship with other scriptures, which is a Protestant rule, of biblical interpretation, we compare scripture with scripture. What we learn is that when preaching is a means of grace to save the soul, it's not just powerful, but it's also gracious because Christ sends his spirit with the word. And so here the Apostle Paul says, our gospel didn't come to you in word only, which definitely means it came in word. Paul didn't come bringing the word by means of a juggling act or through miming the gospel in Thessalonica. He brought the gospel through preaching. But he says that's not what accounts what happened to you and why you changed. Remember the great story of the Thessalonians, which we're still thinking through as we preach that great book, is summed up in a word in verse nine: you turned from idols the living and true God how did that happen well preaching was involved but then Paul adds this most precious qualifier in power and in the Holy Spirit you see the spirit of God made the difference the spirit of God brought the preached word home savingly to the heart he brought it near he put it into the mouth he placed it in the heart and they were saved by grace. And the third thing we want to say here by way of application is that, and this is something we want to savor and think about because it's, it's the theology of the text and it's this, that Christ speaks to his church through the preaching of the word. Christ speaks to his church through the preaching of the word. Listen to John Calvin's statement. He says, it's a singular privilege that he deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men in order that his voice may resound in them. You hear that? It's a singular privilege that Christ would consecrate the mouths of ordinary men that his voice may resound in them. Yes, the preacher is speaking. He's not denying this. Paul's not saying here that somehow the preacher's voice is muted. It's just Jesus talking. There are two voices. There is the mouth of the minister and coming alongside that. There is the voice of God in Christ as the word is proclaimed. The Preachers are the instruments, but they're necessary instruments. God has appointed it that way. But the point is still the same. When we sit under the preaching of the word, we are hearing God speak. And we understand that about preaching, it changes absolutely everything. Because it means that preaching is something that's like nothing else on earth. Preaching is a form of verbal communication which is like nothing else under the sun because nothing else can claim this. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones once wisely said, you better not miss out on preaching because you never know what's going to happen. The reality is you don't. When God's voice speaks, earth melts. You better not miss out on preaching because when God speaks, powerful things can happen. And so I want to have a couple of very specific applications that are built upon that for us to think about this morning. And the first is, we must not forge our own substitutes For hearing God speak. We must not forge our own substitutes for hearing God speak. And here I'm taking a necessary swipe at some very false practice which is permeating the church today. And when I say that, I mean the Reformed Church. It won't be news to you that the charismatic movement has swept across the church world in the last hundred years a movement which is about hearing new words from God in the form of prophecy and messages through tongues. That's not affecting the Reformed church, but a movement which emerged right alongside of it and with it and indeed flowed out of it was a new way of worship. That new way of worship was a worship of excitement, a worship of excitement and emotion. You see, uh, the idea was in order for the church to be made ready to receive these messages from God, these new words from God, well, the church needed to get excited because God would use that emotional uplift to, to stir people so they would be made ready for new words. And an entirely new form of worship swept over the whole church. And it is a worship of excitement. So if you get on your Uh, You get on your computer later today and you start Googling up evangelical churches around me. What you'll see on website after website after website is the shape of the church, which is plastered across the homepage, which is invariably the church meeting in a place that looks like a theater or an auditorium with a stage. With lights and lasers and large TV screens and fog machines. And a crowd of people with hands stretched up into the heavens. Surfing the wave of emotion. Why are they doing that? Because they would hear from God. They would have an encounter with God. And the sad thing is, this is now permeating the reformed world the sad thing is that the biblical and reformed way of hearing from god which is hearing from god as he has consecrated the mouth of the preacher to speak from the word is now being replaced with a worship of emotion so that people will walk away feeling like they've encountered the living God and the sad thing is what it leaves the people of God without is the very thing they seek and need which is to hear from him and we've begun to import that into our churches because it looks like it works auditoriums are filled with people and the Reformed are saying, well, if we just keep doing our same old boring worship and no one's coming, who will ever hear? So we've changed our worship to look like the rest of the church. And we've left people without hearing from the Lord. Well, God, we've not done that. What we've done here is structure the entire worship so that from beginning to end, first and last, you hear from God. If the preacher's mouth is consecrated to be the voice of the living God as he speaks the word, then that's what we do. We hear from God in the call to worship as the scripture is read. We hear from God in the absolution as the declaration of the gospel is made. We hear from God in the reading of the word as he speaks to us through his word. We hear from God in the preaching of the word as he speaks to us through scripture. We hear from God. In the benediction as he sends us away, not with a greeting, but with his very own blessing. That's how we hear from God. And so this morning, as I proclaim to you this rich theology of a gracious means, we need to be reminded this morning as we hear about the truth that Christ speaks in the preaching of the word, that we must not replace hearing God with our own substitutes that leave us without the voice of God. It's absolutely imperative that as a church, we stand firm to uphold this theology so that our children and grandchildren grow up under the voice of God and not the voice of men. The fastest way to kill the church is to do what's popular because it leaves God The second thing, if we really believe this, then we better make it our double duty to be at church. If we believe that God in Christ is speaking to his church every single Lord's day for the preaching of the word, we must make it our aim and duty to be where the word sounds forth. Preaching really is what it is, and we know it is because the word of God tells us it is. There's nothing more important for us to do every single Lord's Day than to find ourselves in worship. There are no excuses for staying up late on Saturday night enjoying worldly entertainment so that you're too tired and you sleep in and you miss worship. That's unbelievable that you would replace hearing from God with providing for yourself. There's no way we should be planning family activities and outings and entertainment and recreation in the place of worship. The fourth commandment is is very clear. We are to, to keep the Lord's day holy. And what that means is we come and we meet with God in worship. And so we set aside everything in our calendar and we make it our aim to honor the Lord by observing the Christian Sabbath. This is important, we keep. And what a double reinforcement we have. We not only have the moral obligation of the law, remember the Lord's day to keep it holy, but we also have this. God speaks. God is speaking to his church through the preaching of the word. We dare not miss out. And so the theology of the Reformation enforces the calling which is to be God's people, which is to honor him with a life of gratitude because of the rich overflow of saving mercy in Christ. People of God, we not only give thanks for great grace, we give thanks for gracious means. May the Lord establish our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. This morning, which reminds us of truths that are well known and long confessed, but are easily forgotten or not believed. Help us, Lord, to take the little bit of faith we have and to bring it to the Word that it may be instructed, reinforced, strengthened, and then filled with the deepest gratitude that we act upon it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to insist upon maintaining. Uh, an understanding of the theology of worship and preaching that is consistent with what you proclaim in your word in order that our hearts may be refreshed with grace and also that your word may be proclaimed under the, uh, the, the saving of those who are lost. And so we pray that you would hear us for Jesus' sake.